Welcome to Difference Makers, where we bring you profound and enlightening conversations with remarkable people who make a difference through innovative and inspiring charity work. On this podcast, you'll hear the incredible stories of real-life Difference Makers, learn about the worthy causes and charities they support, and discover how charity work changes lives for the better. You know, you haven't lived until you've given something to somebody who has absolutely no way to ever repay you back. I'm Al Deseris, and in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with founding member and medical director of Operation Walk Carolinas, Dr. Brian Springer, who's making a difference by providing life-changing joint replacement surgeries for those in need. All right. How you doing, Brian? Welcome to Difference Makers. I'm doing great, Al. Thank you for having me. Thank you, my friend. Um, For our listeners out there, just to let everyone know, Brian and I have been friends since 14 years old. We went to high school together, met our freshman year, and have been friends since. So uh, it's a real honor, Brian. um, I'm excited for our listeners to learn about the amazing work you've been doing and just kind of get them acclimated with who you are and what you do. Why don't you give them a little background on your education and your profession? Sure. Thanks, Al. It's uh, it's hard to believe it's been thirty plus years. I think you might, <laughs> I think you might officially be my uh, my longest tenured friend. <laughs> I think we, I think we met one of the first days uh, freshman year in high school. That's right. Yeah. Right. So that's you know thirty thirty plus years ago. Amazing. What a what a friendship it's been over a long period of time. But thanks for having me. So you know, ob- obviously, as you mentioned, uh, we went to high school together. Grew up in Annapolis, uh, Maryland, uh, small Catholic school. I was very much of the mindset of of wanting to be at a uh, a small college, uh, so I went to Lynchburg College, which was uh, wasn't a whole lot bigger than our high school, amazingly enough. But it seemed uh, seemed big to me at the time. From there, I ended up uh, going to medical school and went to medical school at Marshall University, which is in West Virginia. Finished my uh, medical school there in 1999, last class of the century and was uh, fortunate enough to do my uh, orthopedic surgery residency. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Um, orthopedic surgery residency at the Mayo Clinic, uh, which is in Rochester, Minnesota. So spent five cold years living in uh, the upper Midwest in Minnesota. It's a wonderful experience. And then when I finished my uh, residency, uh, I did an extra year of specialized training, what we call a fellowship, in specifically focusing on joint replacement and even more specifically, just in joint replacement of the hip and knee. Uh, and I did that uh, in Boston at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is part of the Harvard system. Um, finished there in 2005 and have subsequently moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where I live with my family, my wife, and my five children. And I practice in a what would be considered a large uh, kind of private but also academic group where we're still very involved in teaching and research. And I've been here for 15 years. Sounds like a, a pretty direct route all the way through, yeah, but you made definitely it, had you some. You made it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And, and just like that, here we are 15 years, 15 years later. But um, it's you know, definitely had some, uh, some ups and downs and some trials and some struggles along the way, which you know, everybody does that goes through. Uh, that long of uh, that long of an education, or I think anything, trying to kind of find your way in a career path and a in a passion. I got to say, looking back on our high school years, I never would have imagined you'd go on to become a doctor and an orthopedic surgeon, no less. So, how does that happen? It's funny. My parents, my parents, still say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 really interesting. You're right. I mean, I think that along the way. No matter what your career is, I think you know you always want to try and find what your passion is. And some people find it early, some people find it late. Probably doesn't really matter as long as you find it. And I think that there's definitely people that you meet along the way, kind of in your life's journey, for various different things, not just a career. Who I think come into your life and change the direction and the path of your life. You know, I'm a I'm such a big believer in mentorship because I have had such strong, you know, mentors uh, in my life that it, that have guided me down a path. Whether it was giving you 
you know, advice, uh, giving you wisdom through their experience, giving you confidence in direction. You know, of course, obviously our, you know, our friends, I think about you in that light. We don't oftentimes think of our friends as being our mentors. You think of them as being, you know, kind of older people, but certainly I've had, you know, friends in my life that has served as mentors, parents, obviously, you know, I think that goes without saying, and, uh, you know, the important role that, that teachers have in our lives. I, I went to college, kind of an interesting story. I, I always say that one of the best things that has ever happened to me in my life was getting cut from the Lynchburg college basketball team when I was a freshman. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I went, I, I went there, um, I mean, you know this better than I do. I was a, I wasn't a very good basketball player. Uh, I was I was be- better in my own mind than I think. Obviously, you know what I was, but probably one of the reasons I went to a small school thought, oh, maybe I can you know play Division three basketball um, because sports. I mean, you, you remember from high school, sports is kind of your identity, sure. right? I mean, sports. You know, if it wasn't academics, and and mine certainly wasn't academics in high school. You know, sports was kind of your identity. I grew up in a very athletic family. My dad was a coach. My my sisters were great, were really, you know, good athletes. And that was kind of what defined a lot of our youth and our childhood was was sports. That was our identity. And so I went to college thinking that that was somehow going to continue. And that day that I got cut, which was very early, I mean, my gosh, it could have been the it might have been the first day of might have been the first day of practice. It didn't look. It didn't take long. I can tell you that. And I distinctly remember going back to my dorm room. Uh, I I can readily admit that it was tearful. I remember talking to my my father on the phone. You know, worried that he was going to be disappointed. Of course, he wasn't. But also thinking, my gosh, this has been my identity for you know my entire life, and in an instant, it's gone. Wow. You know, what the heck am I going to do with myself? You know, cause I didn't have the academic background. I was, uh, I was at best an average student in high school. That's right. That's and, right. Um, <laughs> I can vouch for that. Yeah. I mean, you can, bear, you can vouch for that at best. And I was um, right below you. And, <laughs> <laughs> I like to think we were high. Okay. I'll take, I'll take but, it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but distinctly remember thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with myself now? You know, I, I no longer have this. And um, I was very fortunate through sports to kind of be involved in athletic training through coming up in high school through one of my dad's friends who was an athletic trainer. And I ended up kind of falling back into athletic training, which, you know, has has a lot of ties to medicine. It's very similar. You know, it's taking care of patients. They just happen to be athletes. It's trying to help get people better, get through injuries. But it also gave me a connection to sports. And uh, I just kind of fit that mold very well and uh, really found something that kind of sparked my interest in athletic training. Uh, you know, also, as I mentioned about the, the mentorship and our, our head athletic trainer, who was also a teacher there, her name was Pat Aronson, was such a huge influence on me in getting me not only involved in athletic training, but challenging me. And I distinctly remember having a conversation with her. I can remember it like it's like it's yesterday where it was sitting in her office. And I was probably I think I was maybe a sophomore, maybe heading into my junior year and her saying, have you ever thought about going to medical school? And I mean, it's, you know, like you mentioned earlier, it was almost laughable, Hmm. right? I mean, who would have ever who would have ever thought that? But I had really dedicated myself to athletic training and been getting good grades. And, you know, she really she really pushed me and, and said, you really need to think about, you know, doing this. I just I, I feel like it would just be a fit for you, you know, but coming out of a, a small college can pose challenges sometimes for trying to get into a medical school. You're not at a college that's affiliated with any medical schools. You don't have a lot of connections. So it really is truly kind of based on your, you know, on your grades. But of course, everybody has great grades trying to get into medical school. And um I applied to a lot of medical schools and didn't get in, didn't even get interviews. Okay. And uh, I decided that I was going to go the route of athletic training. Um, I actually, I graduated with a degree in biology. I was going to go and get a master's in athletic training at Marshall University. I'd also applied to their med school and I got waitlisted. It was the only one I got waitlisted at and uh, graduated college. And I think it was probably within 
two weeks of starting school. I remember because my college roommate was also going there to do the same thing. We had decided to kind of take the same path. And within two weeks of starting, of supposedly starting graduate, graduate school, I got a call from the med school and they said a spot opened up. Do you want to come? That's amazing. I mean, a bit fortuitous, of course. It, it is. Of course it is. I mean, it's, 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 again, it's these things happen sometimes and you, and you just can't really put your finger on it. You know why? I mean, who's that person that dropped out? Who opened up the spot for me to be able to, you know, to fill it? And uh, you know, I changed changed gears on a on a dime, and within two weeks was starting, you know, was starting medical school. So Pat Aronson saw something in you, something that made her believe that you could be a you could be a success as a doctor, and she planted that seed. Yeah, I guess maybe something that you know that's the that's the amazing thing about mentors is they see things they see things in you that you don't see in yourself at the time, right? Mm -hmm. That's their, that's their wisdom. That's their experiences. They can, they can ideally, you know, as I think about it, you know, I think you and myself and other people who all try and serve as mentors now and, and you, and you can pull out certain things in individuals that maybe they don't, you know, see themselves. But just the fact that she brought it up in the conversation one day really changed the course of my life. Well, I'm sure she follows your career and with each success, that is the reward. And, you know, because a lot of times mentors, when they do something like Pat did for you, they're not doing it because they're looking for anything in return. Right. She saw something in you. And in a lot of ways, um, our mentors inspire us, but we also inspire them by carrying out and in living that dream and being successful. So I'm sure it's very rewarding for her to see you having such success in your profession. Yeah, and I think how many how many people she's served in that role for. I mean, not just me, but probably countless other you know students that have come through that she's that she's changed the direction of their lives, right? I mean, and 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 many other teachers and other role models that we all look up to that do that to people. And you know, the best thing you can do for a mentor who's helped you in the way she has is to pay it forward. And I know you, and I know you've done that um, quite a bit. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we get a little further into your work with Opwall Carolinas. But let's first talk about, you know, obviously you're an orthopedic surgeon. You're now with mm-hmm. um, Ortho Carolina. How did you specifically get into knee and hip procedures? I mean, I'm sure that's, that's a specialty. There's, a, there's something that brought you to that specific area of medicine as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I mean, medicine, medicine in general is a huge field. You know, you can narrow it down to just orthopedic surgery, which in in and of itself is its own specialty, is a big field. And medicine has, for the most part today, and you can argue the merits of it, whether it's good or bad, has become, you know, ultra specialized. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing my training in my residency at the Mayo Clinic, very early on, my second year in residency, had a, had, you know, several mentors there that were in that field that, you know, I I saw the dramatic difference they were making in patients' lives. You know, the opportunity to take a patient who is debilitated and in pain from an arthritic hip or an arthritic knee, and in the course of an hour and a half to two hour operation, you know, give them their mobility, their function back, getting them out of pain uh, and, and this is and this is true for for all specialties in medicine and, and surgical professions and medical professions. But to see that instantaneously with joint replacement was pretty had a pretty profound effect on me. You know, not to mention I loved anatomy. It's very uh, hip and knee replacement is very anatomy driven. I love the biomechanical aspects of you know trying to reproduce someone's normal joint uh, with with artificial parts, but. It still comes back to a lot of the role model and the mentorship that I had early on uh, in my residency. So being ultra-specialized is fantastic, I think, because I can really dive very deep into my, into my field. The downside of it is, if you hurt your shoulder, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Right, Good to know. <laughs> so, right. so, so it, it kind of goes both ways. I mean, I have a general, obviously, knowledge and understanding of that, but right. I feel like I can be, be kind of hyper-focused on one area. And, you know, the patient demographics of patients that need joint replacements is, uh, is pretty amazing, too. I get to, I, I get to deal with a great uh, demographic of patients in their, you know, 
all the way from patients that have congenital deformities in their teens and 20s, all the way up to, you know, sometimes 90 plus year olds that need joint replacements or have broken hips that we can fix. So it really affects a broad spectrum of the population. Okay, now that we've laid the foundation of your experience as an orthopedic surgeon, I'm excited for our listeners to learn about the extraordinary work that you're doing through Operation Walk Carolinas. Would you share the mission of the organization and explain how you got started? Operation Walk Carolinas is a chapter of a larger organization called Operation Walk. And a little bit of background on that, I'm sure you are probably familiar with the organization called Operation Smile. Yeah, sure. Most, most people are familiar with yeah, Operation great, Smile. Great organization. Very, very, great organization, very well you know, regarded. They do amazing work. So their mission is they travel to developing countries where a condition called cleft lip and cleft palate is extremely common, whether it's through genetic dis- disposition, oftentimes malnutrition, uh, vitamin deficiencies, things along those lines lead in, in developing countries where they don't have the resources and maternal care uh, leads to high, um, high rates of these children developing cleft lip and cleft palate. And I'm sure you've seen pictures of it. It's number one, it can be very disfiguring for a child, but it's not only just the cosmetic aspects of a lot of these children that have to live with these, you know, these terrible deformities on their face. Uh, but also affects their nutrition. You know, when they're babies, their ability to have a suck reflex, which affects their ability to, whether it's breastfeeding or bottle feeding, obviously infection rates, you know, the connection between their palate and their nasopharynx, their nose, their nasal passages, things like that. It can be, it can be a very debilitating condition for these children. Not again, not to mention having to live in a lot of these countries with this disfigurement where then children might tend to be abandoned or neglected because of their appearance. Uh, horrible to think about. Wow. I had no idea. It, I mean, I knew the cosmetic implications right. of cleft palate. I had no right. idea about the, these medical and uh, other, other effects. Yeah. So it's, so it's, so it's multiple and uh, Operation Smile sends teams of medical teams to these countries and they do these amazing, amazing surgeries. I mean, um, you know, ENT surgeons, plastic surgeons, anesthesiologists, they do these amazing surgeries and get these, you know, children back to health. And then cosmetically, they look unbelievable. I'm sure you've seen pictures of before and after of these, of these amazing children and it, and it, it basically gives them their lives back. Yeah. It's incredible. And so, yeah, it's incredible. And so, on that premise of Operation Smile, uh, a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon in Los Angeles, Larry Dorr, who I know I know very well, came up with this idea. It's been just over 20 years now to do a similar type of mission, and he named it Operation Walk. And the premise behind Operation Walk is to travel to developing countries and perform hip and knee replacement surgeries on patients who would otherwise have zero access uh, to these procedures. And arthritis is a very neglected condition. You know, I say, I always say now, if someone, someone comes into my office tomorrow and they have an arthritic knee and they've decided they're ready to have surgery and they've gone through all the steps and, they, and the conservative treatment's no longer working, in six weeks they could have their new knee if they come in and see me tomorrow. In Honduras or Cuba or Panama, they have zero chance of that ever happening. And so it was Larry Doerr's vision and mission to what he calls restore the joy of mobility uh, by giving these patients this opportunity. And and there's such a huge need. And, And so he started it, and it has subsequently grown to now I think the numbers are somewhere around... 13 to 15 different chapters in the United States of Operation Walk. Okay. Well, I didn't realize there was that many. Yeah, there's about 13 to 15. So I had the opportunity, again, with someone that I trained with uh, who practiced in Denver. And one of my mentors out there, Doug Dennis, who is in Denver, who's very passionate about Operation Walk, who runs Operation Walk Denver, invite myself and one of my partners to go on a trip. Gosh, it's probably been seven or eight years ago now. Uh, to go on a trip with them to experience and share what this was all about. And 
literally coming home in the airport on that trip, my partner and I were sitting there talking and we both had the same idea. We have to do this. We've got to start one on our own. And, uh, it took, you know, two, two plus years of grassroots work and cultivating it to finally get enough growth to be able to finally form Operation Walk Carolinas. And now we're, you know, about five years into it and four, you know, four trips under our belt. Okay. So let me, let me step back. Operation Smile Mm -hmm. inspired Dr. Larry Dore to start Operation Walk. Correct. And now there's 13 to 15 chapters. You guys, you are the founding member, medical director of Operation Walk Carolinas. Correct. So you were inspired by a firsthand observation of Operation Walk Denver. Mm-hmm. Have have any other chapters sprung up since you guys? I'm curious if anybody's come on your trip and been inspired <laughs> by what, because I can see this ripple effect. It's incredible. It, it, that's exactly right. It's a huge ripple effect. And it's a ripple effect in so many ways. It's a ripple effect of what happens when we're down there. It's a ripple effect of what happens when we're back here. But part of my and my partner's goal when we started this, because our, our team is about, when we travel, it's about 50 people that we take with us, 50 healthcare providers that go with us. But part of my mission when we go on a trip, and this is what other missions have taught me, is that I always try and take a former surgeon that we trained here at Ortho Carolina. I always try and take one of our current fellows that we hear that we have here at Ortho Carolina so that they can share in the experience. And then, as you mentioned earlier, you pay it forward. Mm-hmm. And how do they pay this forward? They get to experience what I experienced when I went with the Denver group. And then they subsequently go out and want to do the same thing. So, you know, some of our former fellows that have gone in the Northeast, in Boston and in Maine, you know, looking at um, starting a chapter, some of our current fellows that we have now who are interested in this are asking, how can we start a chapter down in Florida? You know, we want to start an Operation Walk Florida chapter, right? And as long as there are places in need around the world that need joint replacements. As far as I'm concerned, we can't have too many chapters as long as, you know, as long as everybody has the same mission, the same beliefs, the same goals. So it's all, it's, it is, it's exactly as you mentioned, it's that ripple effect of trying to get more people involved so that they can then pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. That's the true legacy of it, right? I mean, that's, that's how you truly establish a legacy is that it, it can continue you know, year after year, generation after generation of surgeons and people that want to, uh, that want to move this forward. So your partner at Ortho Carolina, he's also one of the co-founding members. Is that correct? He is. Yep. And what's it, what's his name? Uh, Walt Beaver, Walter Beaver. He's one of my senior partners. Um, he was the one that went on the, he was the one that went on the original trip with me to Panama, along with my physician assistant who, and one of our nurses who really, you know, again, we sit here and take all the credit, but it's it's the team members that run the show. It's the team members that run the show and put in the in the work. And we can we can get into a little bit about what's all involved in a trip. But you know, we kind of say we're we're the for lack of a better term, we're fortunate enough to kind of be the face of the organization. But it's the people, it's everybody else on the team that makes it that makes it run because it's so much more about just the trip. And so what is the team? You said 50 people. Is that 50 yeah. that go on the trip or 50 that help plan the trip? So there's actually even more people that help plan it, but there, we take about 50 people down there when we travel. So wow. yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's quite a production. So we take, you know, obviously orthopedic surgeons, uh, you know, one or two trainees with us, anesthesiologists, uh, nurse anesthetists, all of the operating room nurses, all of the nurses that work on the wards afterwards taking care of patients in the recovery room, physical therapists, translators, non-medical volunteers, all of the infrastructure that we need, uh, people that what we call SPD or sterile processing department, the ones that are cleaning and sterilizing the instruments in between cases. It's essentially everything that we need, all the personnel and equipment that we need to run 
the hospital to be able to do what we need to do. We kind of always have this old joke is it's not really a joke. It's, it's really true is that we don't want to use so much of a band-aid from the places that we're going because they don't have the resources. We're not, we don't want to go down there and use their resources. Our job is to bring them the resources. And so we ship everything. We average roughly about six to eight tons of cargo that we have to ship down every year. We ship it by sea just because of the cost and the expense. Um, we have to ship it three months ahead of time of the trip so we can clear customs. So it's a, it's a big undertaking, but, um, the undertaking falls on the, you know, the line share on these, on this, on these unbelievable volunteers that give their time and their energy and their passion to, I think it's fair to say almost literally, there's probably hardly ever a day that goes by that I'm when I'm not in the hospital or the office that I don't have a conversation with somebody on the team that we talk about the trip and operation walk literally probably every day we're doing something in planning for it. How do you guys go about recruiting volunteers for your mission trips? We do something that's a little bit unique in that when we are trying to plan our trip for the following year, we actually do an open application process on our website, opwalkcarolinas.org. You can go on and fill out an application if you're interested in going on the well, that's trip. Well, that's where I'm, that's where I'm you, going with this. I want to see if I have to apply yeah. to work at your medical <laughs> practice before I can then apply to no. go on a mission trip. <laughs> you don't, and, and, and you might just have an in. Okay. <laughs> I might know somebody, huh? <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a great example. If you wanted to apply as a non-medical volunteer you know, to come down and, and be involved um, in the trip, you could, you could do that. You know, we're fortunate. We, obviously, our core group of our team, the leadership within our group and the core group of our team is based here in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. But you know, for example, for the trip that we had coming up, we had a nurse from Denver that was going. We had a nurse from Los Angeles that, that applied. We had a nurse anesthetist from the Wilmington, North Carolina area that was going on the trip. Right. So again, it kind of, it's, it's a little bit of that ripple effect. We want to, we don't want to be such a closed system that other people don't get a chance to experience it. We're some, I mean, I would take, I'll be honest with you, I'd take a hundred people if I could, but we're somewhat limited in capacity about how we can travel down there and, you know, things along those lines. But it's a, it's an unbelievable group of, you know, people that are sharing their time, their talents, their money. They're taking, you know, their vacation from work. You know, they're doing a lot of these things to be, uh, to be involved in the trip. And they're fundraising as well. Is that, is that correct? And they're fundraising as well. Absolutely. So we estimate that a single trip costs us roughly about $125,000. And that's, that's in addition to everything that gets donated. So the hospital donates a lot of the supplies. The implant companies, all which have humanitarian arms are uh, of their organizations, are tremendously generous um, in donating implants. I mean, you can imagine if we had to buy implants, we'd never be able to do it. I mean, we're talking a couple million dollars in implant inventory that we ship down. You know, that gets shipped down at every every year in order to do these cases, but we still have to cover, you know, travel and hotel and food and everything like that. So we ask as part of the application process. And when you're accepted, we ask every team member to individually fundraise a thousand dollars. Okay. And it's great. Right. And so that, that helps fund the trip, but also it makes, it's more than just about you know, an individual team member, we don't say just write us a check for a thousand dollars. She can go on the trip. It's, it's about having them involved in the mission and it's what we call fund the mission so that they are doing it to raise awareness. I mean, you know, with all the work that you do with, with Sturge Weber and celebrate hope and everything that you've done with Salvation Army, it's not about someone just writing a check. It's about them raising, it's about helping to establish and raise that awareness. So, oh, so important. So right, important. so they can go out and spread the word about Operation Walk, and they can get a twenty-five dollar donation here, a fifty dollar donation here. We have, you know, patients that have had joint replacements that donate money back. We have fundraisers, but it's more than them just writing the check for a thousand dollars. It's about them, you know, funding the mission. And uh, when I meet with the team every year um, in the beginning of our planning cycle, the one thing that we always say to them if if you think that this is only about showing up on the day of the trip and going down, you know, 
to the trip for seven days and coming back and it's over, then this isn't for you. This is about the bigger picture than just what the trip is. And we really try and reinforce that with the team. I salute your volunteers, but the fact of the matter is everybody's a volunteer. Is that right? Everybody's a volunteer. Everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Including yourself from, from yourself to the non-medical volunteers that might just be there to help um, move things around or, or, or clean or whatever their, their duties are. Everybody's a volunteer. Everybody's a volunteer. And the, and then the response that we get, you know, the volunteers that we have in country is really is overwhelming. The people down there that will then volunteer their time to help when they know that an organization is coming down um, is, is really, it's, it's overwhelming. I'll tell you some of our biggest advocates have been our patients here that have had joint replacements that learn about the work that we do and they support us, right? So, you know, like I said, they'll write, I'll patients that come in that'll drop off $50 check made out to Operation Walk, $100 check made out to Operation Walk, or they, they come in and they donate back their walkers and their canes that they used when they were recovering from surgery for us to be able to take down to the country that we're traveling to. Oh, that's great. You know, it's really, it's amazing. We have great patient support. We get great support from the hospitals, um, you know, and donating their supplies. And then just in the community in general, our, our biggest example, our shining star is Rick Hendrick and Hendrick uh, Motorsports is one of the big NASCAR teams with all the, you know, well-known drivers that you recognized and Charlotte's kind of the hub for NASCAR. And uh, my partner, you know, Dr. Beaver, who's involved with this with me, has a very strong connection. And Rick Hendrick and Hendrick Motorsports is a hugely philanthropic organization. They do lots of humanitarian work. And, and of course, they travel all over the country to do these races. So he has his own planes and things like that. But he uses his planes. I mean, he was down in Haiti after the earthquake the next day delivering supplies, you know, things along those lines. Whenever they're not using their fleet to do their NASCAR work, and they, and they have basically supported our mission from day one. So instead of our entire team having to buy plane tickets and fly down to Honduras or Panama, they transport us down. And they've taken our cargo in the past as well. I mean, that's a, if you think about what that amounts to, 50 people having to fly international, you know, what kind of a donation that amounts to. How generous. That is incredibly generous. Unbelievable. And not only that, but how supportive they've been. So- when they fly down, they don't just drop us off and come back. They leave their plane there. The pilots, the, the flight crew, they stay with us and they volunteer. And we put them to work. <laughs> we have the pilots. We have the we have the pilots in washing instruments. We have the you know the flight crew wheeling oh patients around from the OR up on the floor, um, volunteering, taking care, counting pills. You know, uh, meeting patients and meeting families, and they are. And, and they wouldn't have it any other way for, you know, for a minute, you know, they, they have said from day one, if we're coming down, we're staying and working and, uh, they, they are in it, you know, a hundred percent as well. Um, it's, it's really incredible. You know, it kind of takes me to that thought process of when you are around this kind of work, when you're around charity work, when you're feeling just the rewards of it, it really is inspiring and almost a bit infectious. And it makes you want to get more involved and want you to, for lack of a better word, jump, jump further into it. Yeah. It's unre- it, It's contagious. You know, the old, um, the old adage about volunteer work, and I know you, you experience this all the time is, you know, you haven't lived until you've given something to somebody who has absolutely no way to ever repay you back. Oh, that's awesome. That's the feeling that so many of our team gets, so many of our volunteers get by going on these trips. It's such a it's such a re-energizing moment for them and um they will honestly say that going on these trips makes them better back here. Better at their professions or makes them better at their professions. I was gonna say, or better people, really or maybe does. both. Both. No, both. I mean, I, it, both, no question. I can't tell you how many teammates, you know, the the unfortunate part is our trip for 2020, as you can imagine, had to be postponed. We were supposed to go to, to Honduras, which is one of our favorite places, uh, in May of 2020, but unfortunately, because of the COVID outbreak, both here and in Honduras. 
it wasn't safe to go. So we had to postpone our trip. And, um, it was pretty amazing to me, the, um, the impact that it had on some of the teammates for not being able to go, especially the ones that had been, you know, a couple years in a row and they look forward to, it and they use it as a way to re-energize themselves and, you know, things along those lines. Um, that the impact of not being able to go, the discussions and the conversations and the emails that I've had to have with team members saying, you know, we, we need to go. We have to figure out a way. I need something on my calendar, you know, to look forward to. When are we going? I, I, I miss it. You know, I, I have this void. I don't know how to replace it. You know, those types of comments and things like that. Obviously, these trips take... I mean, what do they take? Six, eight, nine months, 12 months to prepare for? How long does it take? And then what do you do? Because you guys were prepared for that May trip. Yeah. Yeah. So interestingly enough, I mean, I always say we, when we finish one trip the next day, I get people usually a day off and then we start preparing for the, <laughs> for the trip for the How next year. How generous of you, one day off. But um, <laughs> that's right. Well, it's volunteers. <laughs> yeah, so. that's right. So yeah, so we um, we actually had shipped a lot of our cargo down to Honduras. It left in, we have to ship it about two months ahead of time because we ship it by sea because it's cheaper. And uh, then it has to go through customs and clearance and all those types of things, all those challenges you deal with in some of the developing countries. So um, when we had to make the unfortunate decision to cancel our trip uh, in May, uh, our cargo was on its way down there. And, you know, as I said, it's, uh, it's, you know, six or eight tons of cargo. I don't know what the monetary value of it is, but it's, it's not cheap. So what we decided to do was, um, and, and, you know, obviously in the U S we were hit pretty hard with coronavirus. Imagine in a third world country where they have no ability to test, you know, San Pedro Sula, the city we go to three plus million people no ventilators, right? They don't have the technology to have ventilators or they have very few. Um, Rather than um, have our equipment and everything sent back, we told them we wanted them to use it uh, to help. Oh, that's amazing. Um, So, so all of our, all of our gowns, all of our gloves, all of our masks, our face shields, personal protective equipment, anything like that. We, we wanted them to keep it all and use it. So and in a sense, it was really good for the team to know that even though we couldn't be there physically in person, that we were still able to help the people out. Not necessarily in the direct way that we normally do by doing joint replacements, but you know we we're still able to help them out. And the hospital and the system was so gracious to be able to have that because they had none of it. Yeah, th- that's a godsend for them. That's a real godsend. Yeah, it, it was. And, it, and, and, and on our end, it kind of gave us some solace knowing that even though we couldn't be there in person, we were still able to offer some help. Um, and that's helped, that's helped to get us through. Now, you mentioned Hond- Honduras is where you will go back to Honduras, so when, when, when it does get rescheduled. Is that correct? Yeah, that's our plan. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the unfortunate part is we had, you know, we had our list of patients that were you know, in need and, and were ready to, you know, to have surgery. And the, the need in these countries, it's you know, just if you take Honduras alone, the list was somewhere around you know, 2,500 to 3,000 patients that need, that, that need joint replacements. You know, when we go down for a week, we're able to do, you know, maybe 60 joint replacements when we're down there. So we're making such a small dent, uh, in the need. Um, fortunately for, for a lot of the countries, we can coordinate with other teams. So, you know, if we go down in the spring then another operation walk team will go down in the fall. Oh, that's and they great. Can check on our pa- yeah, and they can check on our patients that we operated on and vice versa. We can check on theirs. You know, the, the, the big thing about these trips and what, you know, what is so important to us is this is, um, this is not just about us coming in, swooping into this, into this developing country for a week doing 60 joint replacements, swooping out, not worrying about it again until another year when we have to go down there. You know, that's not, that's not what we want. That's not what this is about. We want to have continuity of care with our patients. We want to know how they're doing. Typically, a small group of us will go back to the country roughly about eight to 12 weeks later and do a follow-up clinic. Oh, okay. Um, so we get to, yeah, so we get to see all the patients that we've operated on we obviously keep in close touch with the surgeons and the doctors that are down there. You know, the, 
the, the challenge is, you know, the old, the old adage of, you know, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for the rest of his life is, you know, we really want to try and go by that mantra. There's, there's amazingly talented surgeons and doctors in these countries, but they just don't have the resources to be able to do things. But when we're down there, we're not just in a vacuum. It's not just Operation Walk Carolinas. We have nurses and nursing students from the hospitals and our nurses are teaching their nurses and our doctors are teaching their residents and our surgeons are teaching their surgeons and our anesthesiologists are showing them how we do things. And, and when we have downtimes, we're giving lectures and the nurses are giving lectures to their nurses. And in this kind of grand scheme of things, ultimately what we want is we want to be able to take, you know, a couple of their surgeons and bring them to Charlotte and have them spend a week here and learn what we do here and be able to take things, you know, be able to take things back. Oh, wow. It's, it's so, yeah, so much bigger than just that, than just that one week, you know, it's, 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 it's education and it's sharing experiences and it's, you know, taking care of patients long-term, you know, not just, not just giving people fish. Now, when, when people get on this wait, is a waiting list essentially, or do you develop the, the list when you guys go down there? Do you interview patients? And then how do you make selections on who is, you know, who can qualify for the procedure? How does all that work? Yeah, that, yeah, it's, it's tough. So the, the, our surgeons that are in country, you know, our, our contacts in Honduras, they will, they will throughout the year screen patients and create a list. Um, they will then send us the x-rays of these patients, you know, say four to six months in advance. We have conferences. We have conferences here. You know, we'll we'll sit down as a team for three hours and we'll go through every X-ray, and uh, and the implant companies are there and they're taking notes and they're saying, okay, we're out of this group. We might need twenty-five left knees and fifteen right hips, and this one may need this equipment, and this one we might need to use this. And so that's how we start to kind of populate our broader, bigger list, if you will. Wow. And then, so there's a lot of prep work on the front end that helps us prepare and pack our inventory. And it's, again, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how much of this is done by the volunteers and my, you know, our, our OR team and my physician assistant and the director of our OR and our, and our anesthesia team that are, you know, constantly working on this every day, tweaking in an inventory. And not only that, but they're going to our, our staging house and our warehouse and packing everything and putting things on pallets and shrink wrapping it and getting the company to come and pick up everything. And everything has to be inventoried down to the individual, you know, gauze pad because it has to go through customs. But it's just um, the amount of work that goes into it is, is unreal. But then when we get down to the country, our first day that we're there, in addition to half the team is in the hospital, setting up the OR, setting up the floors, unpacking all of our supplies, things along those lines. The doctors, the surgeons, the anesthesiologists, the nurses, we're doing a screening clinic. So we may bring in 90 patients that the surgeon thought would be potential candidates. We screen them all medically. We, we do exams on them. We look at their x-rays. We determine their fitness for surgery. What's the best procedure uh, to do for them? And it's amazing. Like in Honduras, for example, I mean, some of these patients, you know, will, will come from, you know, a hundred miles away or they'll, you know, they'll walk or they'll take a bus for three days to get there oh Lord. in the hopes that, that they're going to have this done. I mean, I mean, Honduras is, is obviously one of the poorer countries in, you know, in Latin America and, and these patients are desperate. And so the, the hard part is, you know, we may see 90 patients, but we, because of our resources and the time that we're there, we can maybe only pick, you know, 60 patients and we have to be safe. Mm -hmm. You know, as we always say, we're never cavalier. We're not going to do anything or push the limits of things that we wouldn't do to our patients in the United States and in, in one of the countries that we're in. So we have to be, we have still have to be very conservative, but we have to pare that list down. And some people may not qualify. They may not be healthy enough to have surgery yet, things like that. And we have to have, unfortunately have to have those, difficult discussions with them that we're not going to be able to, you know, to do their surgery this time around. But maybe the hope is another, uh, operation walk team could come another, another operation walk, or when we come back down and I'll tell you, or when we come back and I'll tell you, you would think it's, 
and you know, unfortunately, that responsibility of having to tell these patients no oftentimes falls on my on you. <laughs> oftentimes, um, on myself, oh. where I have to sit in a room and oh. and my PA who speaks fluent Spanish, you know, we have to talk to. Them. But I, I mean, I'll tell you, it's it's probably one of the it's probably one of the more emotional days aside from one of the last days that we're down there when we do what's called a walk. But it's one of the more emotional days when they're when we're down there because you would think that here's these patients that are so debilitated, so crippled, or in so much pain. This is their potentially their only one opportunity. You know, if I'm here in the United States and I tell a patient they're not ready for surgery or they can't have surgery yet because they have to quit smoking or do something unusual, you know, they get angry, storm out of my office and give me a one-star review on, on, <laughs> yeah. uh, on the internet, right? Yeah. That's, that's pretty much how it works <laughs> right? here in America. Yeah, that's pretty much how it works here in America. You know, down there, if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm telling a patient and it's tearful, every single one of them, you know, stands up and gives us a hug, shakes our hands, their family gives us hugs and says, you know, we understand we're here to support you, take good care of the patients that can have surgery, you know, and we'll be back next time. Oh, wow. Um, or they'll volunteer to help when they're down there. And the cool thing is when we go back to countries year after year, patients that we've operated on show back up to volunteer and help. It's amazing. How inspiring. It really is. That is, re- that is really incredible. And this is, this is all hands on deck, 15, 12, 12 15 hours a day for, for what, a week? For, for a, a week. week. For a week. Yeah. And now, you know, our first day is the packing and the screening and our last day is the packing up and, and going home. And one of our favorite things is what's called the walk. And that is at the end of our last day, typically like in Honduras, we have a long hallway and the, uh, the hallway gets lined on both sides with, uh, with volunteers and the patients with their new joint replacements walk down the hallway on their way out of the hospital. Uh, how cool um, is with that? Their family members. Yeah. And so everybody, you know, everybody that's been down in the hour the whole time gets to come up and see the patients that we're operating on and meet their families and, you know, watch them leave. And it's, um, it's a really, really emotional time. If you ever get a, if, if you ever get the opportunity and you go on our website, opwallcarolinas.org, we have some really amazing videos from our trips and usually at the end, we put in kind of quote the walk and every team does it at the end. Um, and it's, it's really amazing to see the patients and how gracious they are. Oh, I'm sure you've essentially changed their lives. And, yeah, and vice versa. And, and vice versa. And that's kind of, you know, that's the kind of the thing about charity work. A lot of people don't understand. You know, a lot of people have said to me over the years, like, I don't understand why you keep doing these things. And, you know, I mean, I, they get they get that I do them in honor of my niece. So they understand that whole component with the love of a family member and wanting to support and help a family member. But they don't understand that piece of the reward, the joy, the fulfillment you get when you do charity work and help people who otherwise aren't looking to repay you or aren't able to repay you. It's yeah. so satisfying and so rewarding. So it's I hard can, to describe. It's so hard to describe. You have to do it. You have to live it. You have to do it. And everybody should do it. And they should. Everybody should do it in one form or the other. I mean, you're you're a great example of that of of what you've been able to do and accomplish, and and you know how many people that you've been able to reach out and and in touch with the work that you've done. Your you know your bike ride, your run, and and all the work through, you know, celebration hope. I mean, you've you've done it, and it and it just goes to show that you know we all have we all have a talent, right? And I think it, it, in some way, shape, or form we all have the ability to share that talent with somebody to help them benefit, right? Like every single person on our team has such a unique and such a strong talent that they're so devoted to. And how crazy would it be to think that they never had the opportunity to share that outside of just the work that they, and that they do here every day, which is amazing in and of itself. But the other thing is just that, I mean, you know, this, you've traveled the world for people to step outside of their comfort zone. I mean, a lot of people on our team, it's the first time they've ever flown or they've never been out of the U.S. And I always talk about this TED talk that I first listened to that inspired me. And one of the words that he had in there was step outside of your comfort zone and do something that you never thought you would do. Right. Mm. I mean, you're, you're a perfect example of that over and over again. And, um, it changes their lives. And, and, you know, you said everybody 
should experience it or or put themselves out there so they can see in some what, form or another right? in some form or another it's not because we're telling them or preaching to them no they will be so thankful and appreciative they did because it's so rewarding for the doer you know we often see you know you have this example the walk and these people's uh, who had the hip and knee replacements their lives have been changed forever but the doers, the volunteers, the doctors, the anesthesiologists, um, everybody who came there, even the, the man who, who helped with the transportation who's coming in to yeah. clean instruments, their lives are in change, have been changed in such a profound and positive way. And it's incredible. And I, I've, I almost kind of feel bad in some way that I feel like we're, we have to be better um, communicators of what this is. And I've been yeah. working on that. And that's what I'm trying to do through the podcast. I mean, if you break it down, ultimately, the podcast is a way I want to celebrate the work of people like you because the work is incredible and you should be commended for it. But I also want our listeners to know how amazing it is to be involved and be a part of it charity is. work. And I want, I hope that they will, you know, take these stories that they're hearing and it will inspire them to get involved and they'll be so thankful they did because there's so much reward there for the doer. Um, it, it's truly incredible. It's changed my life. And I know OpWalk in a lot of ways has changed yours. It is. And I, I appreciate you so much with that message. And I think the other thing that that I would add is that it doesn't you know, doing, doing the work and the charity work and the volunteer work, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this on a grand scale, right? I mean, you, it doesn't have to be biking across the country. It doesn't have to be, you know, going to Honduras and doing joint replacements with a team of 50 people. There's so many, everybody has their unique talent and gift to be able to share and, and, touch somebody and touch somebody's lives. And there's so many little opportunities, you know, so, so many times everything is overshadowed by the, by the big stuff, all the stuff that makes the headlines and the news and, and it's all great work and nothing's more important or less important than anything else is, but you don't have to do something on a grand scale to experience it or to change somebody's lives. There's so many opportunities, you know, locally within your own, community within your own region. There's so many organizations that need help and need volunteers. We just got to kind of come out of our shells and break out of our routine to want to do it. That's a great point. I just want to take one step back because I, I don't want to uh, shortchange you guys. We've talked a lot about Honduras, but mm -hmm. you've also done mission trips in Cuba, Panama we have. as well. And I would imagine in the future you'll be revisiting those countries. Are there any other countries you plan to work into that rotation? And, you know, can maybe just want to give us a brief overview of Cuba and Panama? Sure, sure. Cuba was the first place that we went as our, truly as our own organization, Operation Walk uh, Carolinas. And so it was novel in the sense that it was our first full trip. It was novel in the sense that it was... Havana, Cuba, you know, and all the kind of mystique that comes with going to a place like that that's kind of, you know, shrouded in this mystery, so to speak. But the need there was tremendous. The people and the patients were so unbelievably gracious. And it's it's definitely one of the ones on our list that we are very anxious to look forward to going back to. Uh, Panama, very similar Panama holds a special place in our hearts because that was kind of the very first place we went that inspired us to form Operation Walk Carolinas. Honduras, the people are amazing. I mean, truly, literally have nothing. And so it's we feel like we make big impact there. If you look at all the other organizations, you know, around the country, they are in they're in Southeast Asia, they're in India, a lot in, you know, Central South America. For us, I think our focus on Central and South America is because we have so many people on the team that are bilingual in Spanish that it's kind of a natural fit for us to go there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yep. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then I think ultimately we want to continue to cultivate new sites. So sites and countries that we can go to that have some sense of an infrastructure, have a huge need, 
that we can go in and you know make an impact in there. So that those are always on our radar screen, particularly as we get more mature and we and we develop more and 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 are able to kind of expand out. I think if you ask most people on the team, they'd probably be happy to go once every three months. <laughs> Obviously, logistically, that would be that would be pretty hard to do. Some teams do two trips a year, which is amazing. And perhaps at some point we'd love to get to that point where we could do a, a spring and a fall trip and, uh, you know, to continue to, to expand this and, and do more. So yeah, lots of, every place is, is so unique. Uh, but the response is the same response is the same everywhere you go. Now, I know we kind of, uh, danced around this a little bit, but we haven't fully delved into it. What is your why? What is that thing that's really calling you mm. to do these trips? Yeah. Yeah, gosh, it's so hard to put it into. Um, it's so hard to put it into one, you know, one word or one sentence. Giving back is just, you know, like we said earlier, it's just contagious. And once you do it once, you just you just want to keep doing it. And maybe there's, you know, maybe there are selfish reasons that that we all probably do it a little bit because of the way that it, you know, the way that it makes you feel and and you know what what you're doing. Obviously, that's not the soul you know, reason that we do it. But I just think, again, I just feel so strongly that everybody has a talent in some sense or form that, that needs to be shared outside of just kind of the circle that we, you know, that we live in, you know, to the point that I was trying to make earlier, whether it's in our own community here, whether it's in the U S you know, we live in, we do kind of live in a bubble a little bit. And unless you, you know, unless you travel the world and see what other people have to experience and what they have and what they don't have, we're, we become very kind of culturally egocentric and we think that this is the way it is everywhere. And it's, I think it's so important for people and, you know, for our children and things like that to have a more worldly view of, of what's going on throughout the, the world, because it's, you know, in reality for us, a, uh, a patient in need is a patient in need, regardless of where they are, you know, regardless of what their borders are, where they live, they should, they should at least have the opportunity to have this, to have access to care. Doing this work and feeling the love and the, the gratitude that you receive from some of your patients, you shared this incredible story with me about a time you were in Florida and I'll let you share it with our oh, listeners, but I forgot I shared that with you. Yeah. This is amazing. It's still, I tell it to people now, even to this day, and, and I almost don't believe it. And, um, and the people I tell it to don't believe it. And, and, and it's true. So this was, I think it was 2017. It was the year after we did our trip to Havana, Cuba. And my wife and I and our children were going to Florida for a vacation slash meeting. We had landed in Miami. It was a Thursday night. We landed about 10 o'clock. I had all my kids with me. We rented a car. We had about an hour and a half drive. Kids were hungry. I was hungry. We're driving down the interstate in Miami and uh, trying to figure out where to pull off. And we were, (laughs) you know, having the typical family argument. I want to go to Wendy's. I want to go to McDonald's. Well, a lot of stuff wasn't, wasn't open anymore. And, um, you know, my, my wife credit to her or else this would have never happened said, let's try this place. And I remember it was actually called Pollo Tropical. Interesting enough, had a Spanish name. And, uh, <laughs> so we go through the drive through, we order at the drive through and I pull up to the pickup window and this girl probably in her early twenties leans her head out of the window and goes, Dr. Springer. <laughs> and I remember the white, the look on my, the look on my wife's face, like, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, how do you know? <laughs> how do you know my husband? <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> and she goes, um, she goes, my name is, and I won't say her name, but she goes, my name is so-and-so and you did, double knee replacements on my mom in Havana, Cuba a year ago with Operation Walk Carolinas. And we were, and we were stunned. I mean, I was stunned that it was, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. We're at this random drive through outside of Miami. And this 
patient's daughter recognizes me when the last time I saw her was a, literally a year ago in Cuba. You know, so we kind of exchanged some things. You know, my mom's doing great and things like that. And, and we drove away like stunned. I mean, absolutely stunned. And so we went to the meeting in about three or four days. We're coming back. And, and my wife, who's, you know, amazing with this kind of stuff and her interactions with people and things like that, says, you need to stop back by there and see if she's working. I was like, oh, come on. What are the chances? Like, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. She's like, no, you need to go back by there and see if she's working. So sure enough, it was a Sunday about two or three o'clock before our flight, pulled into the restaurant and I walked in and she turns around and she's standing there and she's, you know, she's as stunned as I am. And so she came over and we sat down and we talked about her mom and she said, you know, my mom was basically immobile and couldn't move and we were stuck in Havana and, you know, had no way out. You did bilateral knee replacements on her. It, you know, your team, uh, we did both her knees at the same time. Uh, your team and Operation Walk and everything, it changed our lives. We were able to get out of Havana, Cuba. We emigrated to Miami. I have a job. I have a place. My mom lives with me. She's doing amazing. And, I mean, it was just like, <sighs> you can't make this stuff up. No. I mean, you can't make this stuff up literally. So we exchange contacts and we still communicate to this day. She sends me texts and asks how we're doing. I'll send her a text. How's your mom doing? She send me pic- she'll send me a picture of like her mom's scars on the front of her knee, you know? But I mean, it's that, I mean, I, I, I can't explain how that happened or what are the chances. That, and you're right. You know, you tell people and there's just like, no way you don't believe it. I have to show them the pictures of me and her in the restaurant, you know, together. But that's, um, I guess it just goes, just goes to show you it's meant to be. You yeah, know. yeah, and I don't think that was a chance meeting. Yeah, and, and maybe not. It wasn't. It couldn't have been. There's no way. There's no way. It's just um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And, um, you know, maybe there was like some, I don't know, maybe that family really never felt like they properly thanked you all. And by the grace of God, they were given this opportunity to do so. And I know you shared this with your, with your team and did. and how inspiring it was for them. Oh, tears. Amazing. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's hard to describe. And that procedure, you know, we were talking back earlier, how, how much of a difference these procedures can make to people and that procedure, well, two procedures, right? Double knee. Yeah. Yeah. Double knee changed this family's life. Yeah. Their, their trajectory. Yeah. Well, that's what we always talk about. That's a great point. I'm glad you brought up because we talk about, you know, you talk about a, a ripple effect or a trickle down effect in many of these developing countries. If the person who is debilitated by arthritis has crippling arthritis of their hips or their knees or a health problem, if they're no longer able to work and provide for their family, then it falls on the children who often then have to stop going to school in order to work, to make money, to provide for the family, right? So if you can take care of a patient and make them mobile and these patients get back into work, their children stay in school, they get an education, they make a better life for themselves. Maybe they're able to come to the United States. I mean, we didn't, that kind of story, I think, is what really solidified how much that, you know, how much that happens. We call it the halo effect that it has on not just the patient, but on, on everybody else around them. Um, and it's true not just for what we do, but that halo effect, I think, happens anytime you, you know, affect somebody's life. Hmm, I've never heard that term. I like that. Yeah. In the short term, how do we support, how do we make these trips successful? Oh, I appreciate, I appreciate you asking, you know, it's, um, you know, you can, you can go to our website, which is opwalkcarolinas.org. Uh, you can read about, uh, every one of the team members, you can support individual team members. Uh, you can watch our videos of our trips. You can read about patient stories. Uh, we typically have a, a fundraiser every year in Charlotte, uh, an oyster roast with, you know, live music and things like that to try and again, it's about yes, we need to raise money. We need to have finances for the trip, but it's about raising awareness and, and volunteers. But you know, if you're, if you're someone that's had a joint replacement and you have equipment, uh, you can donate your equipment back to us. Um, obviously, you know, don't, you know, donating money, things like that really helps. Or if you just want to, you know, learn more about it, we hope to get to the point 
as we continue to go down this to be able to potentially allow people to sponsor patients, you know, so they can, we can get patient stories up ahead of time and, and someone may choose to go on and say, I want to support, you know, Mrs. X and her journey to have a hip replacement. And, you know, I want to donate, you know, $500 to help her be able to get her hip replacement. So that's something that we're working on for the, you know, for the future to be able to make it, to make it be very personable and impactful for the people that want to help. Well, this is Difference Makers, and you, without a doubt, are a true difference maker, doing some extraordinary work out in the world. Before we wrap this up, is there any advice or a parting message that you'd like to share with our community? Well, I think, you know, you're doing it out just by the work that you're doing through Difference Makers and raising awareness and supporting all of these amazing charities and the work that everybody's doing. And I've enjoyed learning about all the different charities and organizations. But I think I think really what you're doing and what your message is, is that everybody has the ability and the opportunity to make a difference somehow. You just have to figure out what that is, whether it's being part of an organization or doing something individually or something with your family. Everybody has the opportunity to somehow make a difference. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your story with our community. It's been an honor. Uh, My pleasure. The honor is all mine. On behalf of Difference Makers Global Community, I want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, visit differencemakers.org. There you'll find a dedicated page for each of our Difference Makers and a link to their charity's website, where you can learn more about their inspiring work and support the mission. And for our readers out there, I have two books that I wrote that I'd love for you to check out. Crossing America for a Cure and Running the Coast for a Cure. These books chronicle charity adventures I did in honor of my niece, Jenna, who was born with a rare neurological disorder called Sturge-Weber syndrome. Both books can be purchased on Amazon.com and all profits from book sales are donated to Sturge-Weber Research. Thanks again for listening. And remember, in each of us is the power to make a difference.